Hello, pod listeners. Thanks for tuning in and for being a part of the Wilden Hills ministry. The last pod listener message that we sent out was about our finances. At the time, uh, we were facing something of a financial crisis. And uh, I want to thank those of you who uh, contributed uh, to the ministry here. Our staff made some voluntary cuts. We made some budget cuts. And as a result, things have uh, pretty much stabilized. But thanks for your ongoing support. If you've been uh, part of the Podrishner ministry here uh, for any length of time, you might remember that about a year ago, uh, we did a survey, a demographic survey, and we want to make that an annual thing. It really helps us uh, to know kind of who is out there, who's downloading uh, the messages, uh, how they're using the resources. We're looking at expanding our ministry and looking at uh, ways we can better serve our Podrishners. And so we want to make this an annual thing, this survey that we're doing. So I'd like to ask you to please take just four or five minutes, that's all it would take, get on our website, whchurch.org, and fill out the survey that is there. Uh, We find that is very helpful as we're moving forward uh, in our Podrishner ministry. Again, thanks for being part of our virtual congregation. It's an honor to serve you. Uh, Keep us in prayer and keep on expanding the kingdom. God bless you. All right. We are continuing our study of the book of Luke. Uh, we just kind of, we, we, take, we take breaks for the, once in a while for like this series that we're going to be doing with Animate, but otherwise we just go through the Bible verse by verse. We've been in the book of Luke for eons and eons. We're up to Luke chapter 18, and we're going to study five verses here this morning. Uh, th- this is a passage of scripture that has uh, really been influential in my life and in my theology. Uh, it is one of the main passages that the Lord used to free me completely from religion uh, in the early 80s, actually late 70s. Um, and I, I, I want to really chew on this because I think it's going to have uh, some, some impact on some folks um, that could really reframe the way you think about things. I want to title this, Shocking Humility and Extravagant Grace. Shocking humility and extravagant grace. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. I'm reading from the TNIV version. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Pray with me here for a moment. Lord, for everybody in this auditorium and listening through podcasts or any other means, we pray, God, that you'd open up our hearts and minds to receive your word, that uh, your word would find fertile soil and that kingdom seeds would be planted. In, in particular, God, I pray that you will use this, Lord, to uh, shock us where we need to be shocked and to help us to look into the mirror in a very honest way and see things maybe we haven't seen before. 
that we can reframe everything. And God used it to root out of our minds and hearts anything that would in any way compromise, water down, dilute the power and beauty of your kingdom. But Holy Spirit, only you can do that. Words cannot do that, so have your way here. In Jesus' name, we pray and all God's people said, amen, amen. Let me start with a, a quote uh, from Richard Foster, one of my favorite authors in his book, Celebrating Dis Discipline. Uh, it's a quote that really is kind of derived from uh, Gandhi more than anything else. But he says this, everyone thinks of changing the world, but where or where are those who think of changing themselves? Ain't that the truth? Everybody wants to rule the world because they, of course, are wise and superior and, uh, and have insights. We want to fix the world, we want to fix government, we want to fix people. Uh, but rare is it to find a person who really understands that the problem is themselves. And so we try to fix the world, broken people trying to fix the world, and whenever that happens, the world just gets more, more and more broken. But it is the case, isn't it, that in our fallen condition, we're always better at seeing how other people need to be fixed than how we need to be fixed. You get this a lot with sermons. I get it, you know, on occasion with people responding to sermons. I probably won't get it after I say this, but um, you know, people come up and they say, you know, gosh, that was a good sermon. I sure wish my wife was here to hear that. She needs to hear that sermon. <laughs> or my husband really needs to hear that or, or whoever, you know, and part of me is thinking maybe, you know, the, you're the one who needs to hear it. When I was first uh, in the ministry, I, I never actually planned on getting in the ministry. I was going to be a professor once upon a time, but uh, the, this pastor of this church asked me if I'd like to uh, come and be part of his staff. I actually was the worship leader, and I would visit uh, people in, in, in uh, hospitals and things like that. So uh, he brings me on staff as I'm going to grad school, and very quickly after I got on staff, he decides he's called to go someplace else. And no sooner did he feel, lead, feel, feel led to leave uh, than I discovered that this church, which looked very good on the surface, was actually profoundly sick. Uh, there was warring factions in this church that were incredible. That goes back 50 years, people vying for power. And ugliness and, and unforgiveness and bitterness and hatred like I had never seen. Uh, welcome to the ministry. It was absolutely uh, horrifying. This one lady in particular, uh, you know... It, I still remember her name. I remember everything about her. That's the impression she made on me. I had never seen such hatred and bitterness and venom in a Christian in my life. It was absolutely amazing. So I end up having to start preaching and, um, uh, because they're now looking for a pastor. In the meantime, I'm the preacher. And I gave a sermon on forgiveness. Uh, and God really landed on it. it. It just really, you know, the power of God fell. And, and at the end of, of the sermon, a lot of people came forward and just kind of laid on the floor and were asking for forgiveness. And, and there, there was a lot of healing that was going on. But all the while that was happening, this particular lady that I mentioned was sitting in the back of the church, folding her arms, kind of looking with that scowly look she always had. And when the service was finally done, she comes forward, and I figured it was to blast me because that's all she'd been doing since the other pastor had left. I always had an opinion, and it usually wasn't nice. But in this case, she said, you know what, that was a profound God-anointed sermon. I hope they finally got it. That's what I'm talking about, though. We, it, it's, we always tend to see how things apply to other people, but not so often ourselves. Now, now, the thing is, is that we can do that with Bible stories. I think we do it a lot with Bible stories. We read a Bible story, 
And guess who's the good guy? Us. We associate with the good guy, the hero. And who's the bad guy? Well, it's that neighbor of ours. Oh, it clearly applies to them. And, and, and we, we have a, 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 an incredible ability to be very uh, prejudiced in our own favor. And we read the Bible that way. So it's possible, it's just possible that some who are hearing this message in the auditorium or through podcasting, it's possible that as I read this story, and you heard about the Pharisee, you immediately started thinking, oh yeah, those Pharisees, that's just like my neighbor or this preacher I knew or those stuffy Christians down the road. The tax collector, of course, is me because I am so humble. And, and so we would easily associate ourselves with the good guy in this story. Uh, and that would be the tax collector. The thing is, one of the purposes of parables, when Jesus talks in these parables, one of the purpose, uh, purposes is to catch us in our own sin and catch us in our own self-inflicted blindness and to turn the tables on us and to hold up a mirror in front of our face to kind of force us to really look at ourselves accurately because it's so easy for us to not do that to have a distorted picture of ourselves. And so I want to encourage us as we're studying this parable to be open to the possibility of getting caught, letting Jesus catch us in our own blindness, maybe our own duplicity. Okay, to start, the parable is here directed against some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Now, it'd be possible... To here get a picture of, you know, to kind of get a caricature of the Pharisee as some, you know, hyper stuffy, obviously self righteous person who's just so full of themselves and snobby and looking down on everybody else. And, and so you kind of get this caricature, maybe identify it with a TV evangelist you saw or, or some other stuffy Christian, who knows. But, but it'd be easy to caricature that. And see, if we do that, it makes it easy for us to contrast ourselves with that person and to assure ourselves that we're not like that kind of stuffy, Pharisaical Christian. Uh, we are rather humble. The irony is that the minute we do that, we are guilty of the very thing that the parable's teaching against. Because we just made ourselves secure in our own righteousness over and against somebody else. Gotcha. We're not like the Pharisee. We're reinforcing our own confidence in our humility, our humble righteousness over and against stuffy, judgmental Pharisees that we have in our mind. But let's not caricaturize this Pharisee. Let's just stick with the text. The text says that he simply was confident in his own righteousness. That's all. He was confident. To the point where he could look down on some others. He was confident that he was more righteous than the evildoers, than the adulterers, than the robbers, and certainly more righteous than this tax collector. That's all. He was confident. And I suspect when he prayed, he was being very sincere. We could easily imagine some kind of phony prayer. Oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like these losers. You know, and, and that would make it easy for us to say, oh, we're not like that. But I think the guy was totally sincere. God, I am just so thankful that I'm, I'm not like the, the, a tax collector and this evildoer, this adulterer. I, I, I thank you, God, that, that they do bad stuff, but I do good stuff. And he did do good stuff. Let's hand it to him. Uh, you know, he went to the temple probably daily. That's what Pharisees did to pray. He was a regular prayer. Uh, he fasted twice a week. I don't do that. Do you do that? That was a good thing to do. Uh, you know, he, he paid his tithes. That was part of the Jewish law in the first century. So this was a good guy. And I think he's just sincerely thanking God for that. I've heard similar prayers and similar testimonies among Christians, and we don't think much of it. God, I just am so thankful that I'm not part of that crowd. You're confident that you're, that you're at least more righteous than they are. 
He had, by first century standards, the right theology. He had the right behavior. So, of course, he felt confident in his righteousness over and against those people who had the wrong theology and or the wrong behavior. I suspect most of us aren't too different from that. Now, the most important person that he contrasts himself with is the tax collector because he's the other character in this parable and he is also the most villainous person in this parable. Of all the people that the Pharisee contrasts himself with, the worst one would have been the tax collector. I want us to, you know, to, to get in on this. Uh, to really appreciate what's going on in this, in this parable. So let's talk about the tax collector. Who was he? To understand fully the tax collector, we need to understand something about the history of what's going on here. Israel had been for quite some time under Roman rule. The Romans were controlling the area, and their rule was sometimes quite brutal. They would severely punish anyone who showed the slightest inclination to not go along with their program. That's how they, they kept peace throughout the world, the Pax Romana. It was, it, was, it was by imposing severe punishments for any who would cause them trouble. Sometimes they would respond to minor uprisings by flexing their muscle and rounding up a bunch of people and killing them all, even if they were innocent, just to remind people who is in charge and you do not want to mess with us. The way they supported this incredible empire was by uh, imposing heavy taxes on their subjects. And if people couldn't pay their taxes, their property was confiscated, and if that didn't cover the bill, then the family was farmed out into slavery. Not together, they were farmed out. And so you're, you can say goodbye to your kids, because now they're going to be slaves. The Romans were foreigners in Palestine, and so what they did in Palestine, as they did in a number of areas, was that they would conscript uh, uh, natives, indigenous people, to do some of their bidding people who knew other people and who knew the customs, whatever. And, um, and so they would employ people from their own land. So in Palestine, they would employ as many Jews who were willing to do some of their bidding, including collecting taxes. They would find usually very unpatriotic people and usually unprincipled people uh, to uh, go to their own people, the Jewish people, and collect taxes from them to support the Roman government. And so you can begin to understand why they were not very popular among other Jews. And if the, their fellow Jews couldn't pay their taxes, their job was to report it to the Romans, who would then come and confiscate their property. And if that didn't work, they'd sell their kids into slavery. You can understand why these tax collectors weren't very popular among most Jews. And perhaps the most offensive thing was, it was this. Rome would look the other way when the tax collectors would charge their own people more than was actually due. That's, they'd pocket the difference. It's one of the ways they got very, very wealthy. They'd say that the bill is this much when really the bill was much less than that, but they would keep the, the, the change. And Rome didn't care as long as they got their cut. And there wasn't much that the people could do about this. You know, you try to report the tax collector to their superior. Well, who's their superior? It's a Roman. And the tax collector is working for the Romans. Who are the Romans going to side with? And now you've just made a big enemy of this tax collector who's got a lot of power, and you can expect to pay a lot more taxes next year. And so there really wasn't much recourse that the ordinary Jewish people could have against these tax collectors. We can easily understand how these folks were not very popular among most Jews. Now, to really appreciate this perspective the perspective that most Jews would have towards the tax collector. Because the meaning of this parable hangs on this. Let's put ourselves in the position of the Jews of the first century. 
And imagine that we are now under some severe rule. Imagine that our worst enemies have somehow conquered us and reign over us. Imagine, if you will, that Al-Qaeda has conquered America. And now we are being ruled by President Osama bin Laden. Instead of President Obama, we have President Osama. How happy would you be about that? Now, you may think I'm exaggerating. Here goes Boyd. He's always exaggerating. This is an unfair comparison. You're just trying to push our buttons, aren't you? As a matter of fact, though, uh, this isn't an unfair comparison. You're mad because Osama bin Laden killed 3,000 Americans. Got that. But Rome did that all the time. Uh, we have one count in Josephus where there's this little uprising. Some troublemakers started, you know, uh, ruffling some feathers. And so Rome came in there and they, they rounded up 4,000 people and crucified them all just to remind people who was in charge here. In, the 70, in 70 AD, they came into Jerusalem and slaughtered the whole town. So, so there, it was a very harsh, barbaric rule. I think the analogy is very appropriate. Most Jews of the first century would have had their, the view of the Romans that we would have, we would have towards Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden if they had conquered us. So imagine that here we are, we're a conquered people, we're humiliated subjects of Osama bin Laden. He's imposing strict Islamic law on us. We've lost all of our freedom and we've lost all of our rights. All the things that we enjoy as Americans are gone. We're now under harsh uh, Islamic rule, paying heavy taxes, and sometimes our kids are being sold into slavery in Muslim homes. And now on top of that, just to continue to enter into this passage, Imagine that some Americans, out of sheer greed, decided to work for Osama bin Laden and for Al-Qaeda and to help make sure that they stay in power over other Americans. And one of the ways they do that is by collecting taxes for Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. And when you can't pay taxes, one of the things these Americans do is they report you to the authorities who then come and confiscate your belongings and if that doesn't pay for it, they sell your kids into slavery. Now ask yourself the question, how would you feel to those about those turncoat Americans who are now collecting taxes from you to support the enemy regime and reporting you and selling your kids into slavery? Let's make it a little more concrete. You remember this guy, John Lynn, John Walker Lynn? He was a U.S. citizen who uh, betrayed America and joined Al-Qaeda and became a terrorist. Some of you will remember, I think it was in 06 when he got caught. The venom that was poured forth in the media and on blogs about this man was absolutely intense. Many were saying the only thing worse than an Islamic terrorist is, is an American citizen who turns on a, his own country and now becomes an Islamic terrorist. He was among the most hated people uh, in America. So now imagine, get, get this guy's picture in, in your mind. And imagine that we're under Al-Qaeda rule and this guy comes to your door. Maybe you knew him before. He lived right down the street. He used to play with your kids when he was growing up. And now he's turned on America and on you. And he's come and he says, now it's time to support Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. Here's your tax bill. You have to pay it. Plus, you know that he's charging you more than Al-Qaeda even demands. And he's pocketing the difference. And there's not a thing you can do about it. Because if you make trouble with this, well, then he's just going to up the taxes more and cause more trouble for you. How would you feel about John Lynn coming to your door, supporting Al-Qaeda, forcing you to pay taxes to them, and threatening to sell your kids into slavery if you don't go along with it? 
enter into that emotion, and that's kind of how most Jews of the first century felt about tax collectors. And now honestly, honestly, ask yourself the question, wouldn't you feel quite confident that you were more righteous than John Lynn coming to your door to collect taxes as America is being ruled by Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda? Wouldn't you be pretty confident that you're a little more righteous than he is? How could you not? How could you not? You're, you're, you're not selling out your country. You're not turning on your fellow American. Uh, you know, you're not supporting a totalitarian, violent regime. You're not ripping off your fellow Americans and supporting the, the, the institution and the government that took away all of your rights. Rather, you're a person who stands for truth and righteousness. Uh, you're a person who stands for freedom. You're a person who, who goes to church and you pray once in a while. Maybe you fast once in a while. You give to charity organizations once in a while. You volunteer services uh, to help the poor and help kids in the inner city. You're very, very different from this guy. How could you not feel a little bit more righteous? And when you went to church, if they even allowed church, it'd probably have to be an underground church of some sort. But when you went to church and were praying, might you not pray something like, thank you, God, that I'm not like John Lynn. I'm not like him, like that scumbag. The answer to that is yes, and let's be honest. For most of us, it would be yes. Uh, if the answer is yes, well, that is... Exactly the attitude of this Pharisee. That's all he's doing. He's not doing anything worse than that. I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector, this John Lynn of the first century. That is the attitude of the Pharisee. And so, folks, let's be honest. We're caught. We're caught. We are on the inside of the bad guy of this parable. We are confident in our righteousness and we'll look down on a tax collector like John Lynn in this circumstance. Now, maybe you're thinking to yourself right now, I bet some people are, no way! Here's Boyd going to extremes again. He always does that. Uh, there's no way on earth that Jesus was saying that a God-loving, church-going, law-abiding, tithe-paying, on-the-knee-praying, faithful American is no more righteous than some greedy, self-centered, principalist, evil, treasonous, Al-Qaeda turncoat. No way. And I'm here to tell you, yes way. Absolutely way. Definitely way. It is that shocking. If you're shocked at this, if it defies your common sense, you're finally getting the point of the parable. It was supposed to be shocking. This is why the, and maybe you're offended by this. Great, because you're supposed to be offended. That's, that's, that's the point of these parables. Now you begin to understand why Jesus always made people mad. Why he, he, he just really offended the Pharisees. This is why he got crucified. If he would have pulled it back a couple of notches, he could have spared it, saved his life. But he gave teachings like this that really offended the Pharisees and those who lived by their own common sense. Now, now, now look at you know, what Jesus is doing is trying to get us to, he's trying to shock us to get out of our common sense. He's trying to shock us uh, to uh, get out of our common sense way of thinking about God, ourselves, and each other. Because it's so obvious, isn't it, that we would be more righteous than a traitor like that. But he's trying to shock us out of that in order to uh, free us from the bondage of our common sense, the stuff that's so obvious to us. Free us from that to embrace a radically different and far more beautiful way of thinking about God, ourselves, and uh, each other. 
But it's shocking. Now, I want to be clear here. I want to be really clear. Jesus is not denying that society uh, and government needs to punish and protect itself against uh, evildoers like robbers and, and people who destroy society and traitors like John Lynn. He's not denying that. He's not denying that society needs to put robbers and evildoers and others in prison. Uh, Jesus' teaching here and throughout the Gospels, it's never about what society as a whole should do, and it's never about what government or Caesar should do. Jesus is, is talking about a radically different kingdom. And he's talking to people who have a heart to enter into this radically different kingdom. Societies do what society's got to do. Governments do what government's got to do. Nations do what nations got to do. Jesus isn't trying to fix that. What Jesus is doing is he's talking to people who have a heart to enter into a radically different kind of kingdom, who want to join the kingdom revolution. And what he's saying here is this. If you want to come under the reign of God and have all your thinking conform to God, that's what it means to come under the reign of God, well then, as commonsensical as the social way of looking at things and the political ways of looking at things are, as commonsensical as they are, you can't have your thinking be conformed to that. Your thinking is going to be radically different. Your frame of reference is going to be radically different to the point where it should shock the common sense way of looking at things, the, the way that is dominant in the culture and in the government. So, of course... Society has to judge John Lynn as far more evil than a good, upstanding, law-abiding citizen. Of course, society will judge some as more evil than others. But as kingdom people, we're forbidden to ever judge someone else as more evil than ourselves. And of course, society is going to have to judge John Lynn as an enemy of the state and lock him up. But as kingdom people, we're, we're called to not have any enemies. Of course, society as a whole is going to rank people. It always does that. Uh, society is going to decide who's virtuous and, and who's got vices and you want to reward the virtue and you want to punish the vice. Of course. Society with its categories and the government with its categories are going to say some are important, some are unimportant. You know, some some are, 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 are good, some are evil, some are beneficial, some are harmful. We've got to give these people freedom. We've got to put these people behind bars. Of course, society and government will do that. Yes, Jesus isn't commenting on that. But see, in the kingdom, we're not allowed to rank anybody. We're to opt out of that whole social evaluation game as commonsensical as it is. In fact, in the kingdom, we're to turn that social evaluation game on ourselves. What, what I mean is this. Here's Paul. Paul, by normal social standards, definitely would come across as far better than average, upstanding person. Society would judge him as one of the good guys. But Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 15 and 16, he says, I am the worst of sinners. That is the kingdom mindset. In the kingdom, while society may compare and contrast and evaluate and rank, yes, that's what society does, but we're called to adhere to the teachings of Jesus when he tells us that whatever sin is in our life, we're to treat it like a tree trunk, and whatever sin is in someone else's life that we think we see, that's a mere dust particle in comparison. We turn the whole social game of, of comparing and evaluating on its head where we come out on the bottom. Society and, and governments, of course, evaluate people on the basis of virtues and vices, but we who are committed to the kingdom are called. This is so, so radically different, folks. We are called to view everyone, God, ourselves, and others, in the light of the cross. End of discussion. And when we view God, ourselves, and others in the light of the cross and in the light of the gospel, what we come up with is this. We first of all confess that we are part 
of a rebellious race. We are sinners who are part of a sinful race. We, that we have fallen and come short of the glory of God. We are, all of us, left to our own devices, dead in our sin, not just wounded, but dead. Uh, we understand when we look at God, ourselves, and others in the light of the cross that, that uh, apart from Christ, we are all lost. We are headed for destruction. Uh, Paul says in Romans 3 that there's none that, that does righteousness, that there's none on their own effort who even seek after God. When we look at things in the light of the cross, we understand that if, if the cross is the cure for our sin, then our sin was really, really serious. It doesn't feel that way to us, of course, but that just shows how far gone we are. You know how radical the disease is by how radical the cure uh, had to be. And if that was the cure, our disease is very, very serious. You understand that we are all in quicksand. And le left alone, we will certainly go under and perish. That's the nature of the sin. And when you're in quicksand, it doesn't matter really whether you're a little prettier than somebody else or have a few more possessions than somebody else who's in quicksand or, or, or whether you've accomplished some, some great things as opposed to other people who are in the quicksand or whether you're a little more righteous than someone else who's in the quicksand. If you're all in the quicksand, you're going down. And the comparing and contrasting game becomes pretty silly at that point. When you're in quicksand and we realize, when we look at things in the light of the cross, just how far we are, are gone, it really, there's really no point in comparing uh, the John uh, Lynn traitor with the Rush Limbaugh patriot or the Mother Teresa saint with the villain down the street. What matters is that left to ourselves, we're all going down. That's the first thing we say when we look at the world, not through the social game of ranking and comparing and contrasting, but we look at it through the cross. But that's not the last thing we say because we also say this, and this is just as important, if not more important. And that is that God did not leave us in the quicksand, praise God. He did not leave us to our own devices. He didn't leave us in our fallen condition despite our sin. As we sang about earlier and talked a little bit about earlier, God has this profound, weird love for us. Uh, this, this, this unique kind of love for us. He burns with love towards us despite our sin. And out of that love, he became a human being for us. And out of that love, he went to Calvary for us. And out of that love, he took upon himself uh, our rebellion and the consequences of our rebellion. Uh, out of that love, he suffered hell on our behalf so we don't need to. Out of that love, he showered us with mercy. He showered us with grace. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. When we look at the world, not through the evaluation game of society, but in the light of the cross, what we realize is what Paul declares in Romans 5, that where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. God didn't just break even on this deal. He oversaved us. He doesn't just give us a little bit of mercy. He lavishes mercy on us. He lavishes uh, extravagant, unfathomably beautiful grace upon us. He wraps his arms around us. It's superabundant grace. It's mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace, kindness upon kindness, love upon love, infinitely intense, burning towards us, despite every reason we give him not to do it. He turns it up all the more. In the midst of our rebellion, he didn't just extend us a helping hand. He dove into our mess to redeem us out of that mess. It could not be more beautiful. It could not be more gracious. It could not be more incomprehensible. And when we get this, how far we were gone and what God has done to restore us, when we get this, when we really put on the spectacles of, of, of the cross and, and, and put aside the, the grid of, of the social evaluation compare contrast game. When we put that aside and look at the world, look at God, look at ourselves and every other person in the light of Jesus Christ. When we really get this, we immediately understand that there's simply no room or no need 
to compare and to contrast. There's no room and no need to judge or to look down on anybody else. When we get this, when we really get this, not just theoretically, but it becomes the way that we look at the world, we realize that all boasting is, is rendered silly, like people bragging as they're going under in the quicksand. We begin to realize that all religious arrogance is ruled out. All self-righteousness is done away with. When we get this, I mean, when we really get this, you begin to see that while society, of course, will make comparing and contrasting, it has to do that. Uh, While society has its grid, when it comes to our standing before God, every human being is in the exact same spot. We are all sinners who, despite our sin, are loved with an outrageous love by an unfathomably beautiful God. And that's all that is to be said about it. Whether you're a Pharisee or a tax collector, whether you're a Rush Limbaugh patriot or a, a, a John Lynn trader, whether you're a Nobel Peace Prize social activist or a drug lord in the inner city, uh, it's all, it, all, it all is the same in terms of our standing before God. All are, have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All are sinking in quicksand, and yet all are loved with this outrageous love by an unfathomably beautiful God. He has done that for us. And what does God ask of us in response, in light of all that he's done? It's simply this. To set aside the attitude of the Pharisee, which I hope a lot of us have come to see that we're closer to than maybe we thought. To set aside completely the attitude of the Pharisee, who gets life from the social evaluation game, and to accept the attitude of this tax collector. This tax collector... This John Lynn of the first century, um, it says here, he stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This John Lynn of the first century, he, he felt unworthy to even go into the temple. In fact, he felt unworthy to even stand in the vicinity of the temple. It says he stood at a distance. He felt so unworthy, he wouldn't even lift his, his head towards heaven when he prayed. He simply beat his breast. That's a sign of Repentance. Uh, it, it expresses his desire to turn. Repentance means you just turn. He wanted to turn. He wanted to change. He wanted to submit his life to God. And this John Lynn of the first century, in this situation, he would have no confidence of his own righteousness. He, he wouldn't at all be tempted to think he could ever stand before God on his own merits. He'd be the last person on the planet to think that he could look down on anybody. And that is the advantage of being a tax collector. That's why Jesus says the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going to get into the kingdom of heaven before the Pharisees. Because see, these folks have already lost. They're the losers on the social evaluation game. They come out on the bottom end. So they're kind of open to a new way of looking at things. But see, the Pharisees and the other good, upstanding people of the first century, they win at the social evaluation game. And so those of us who are at the top who benefit, it's hard to let go of that privileged status and put yourself in the, in, the, in, in the position of the tax collector. But what Jesus is saying is that the only way into the life of the kingdom is to accept the attitude of the tax collector where you understand, as Paul says, that you're the worst of sinners. We understand that your sin is a tree trunk compared to everyone else who's got dust particles because the whole evaluation game has been collapsed. This John Lynn of the first century would know that his only hope is that God's love for him is greater than his sin. And he's right in having that hope. And that's the only hope any of us have got. It's just that it's a little harder to accept 
you got a lot of other good things going for you. Jesus said that this guy went home justified rather than the Pharisee. The word justified means to be declared righteous. Righteous has to do with right relationship. This Pharisee, because he got to the point where he stood, uh, none of his confidence was, 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 had anything to do with what he does, and he simply trusts in the character of God, his heart was rightly related to God. It's the only way a heart can be rightly related to God, to accept this shocking humility that offends the Pharisee. He had that going on, so he went home with this right relationship with God, whereas the Pharisee, who's still getting life from how he compares and contrasts with people like the tax collector, he was not justified. He was not rightly related to God. And the point of the whole thing, folks, is that Jesus is teaching us that the only way to enter into the extravagant grace of God is to embrace the humility that shocks the Pharisees. An outrageous, uncommonsensical humility. Now, God's grace is extended towards you and God's love is extended towards you as much as if you receive it or not receive it. it. That doesn't change that. But you won't enter into it. You can't enter into it until you die to yourself, which means dying to the false way of getting life from your supposed good works and winning at the social evaluation game. So I want to close with two words. One to the, those of us who'd be more inclined to uh, fall in the camp of the Pharisees, and then those who would be more inclined to associate with the tax collector. To the Pharisees, look at You may be by normal social standards really, really good. In terms of how society evaluates people, you really come out on top. Uh, you do all the good stuff. You go to church, and that's good, and, and, and you, you share your income with people who are poor and, and, and with ministry, that's good, and, and, and maybe you fast once in a while, that's good, and you volunteer your time at inner city schools, and that's good. You do a lot of good stuff. In terms of social evaluation, you come out on top. I know I do. <laughs> no, I can't get... <laughs> Let's say probably a, a good portion of us hearing this right now are in that situation. Can you see in the light of this parable that while it's good that you do what you do, keep on doing it, that's good, that it can have no place in terms of your confidence in being able to stand before God? Can you see in the light of this parable that everything you do, which is good, do it, but it doesn't give you any points. It doesn't add in terms of your status before God. That it's not about that. In the kingdom, all that we do, and we're supposed to be radical activists and, and, and doing stuff, living a Jesus lifestyle, but all of that is not to acquire uh, points that we don't have. It's not to become justified. We do it because we are justified. It's because we have a right relationship with God and the life of God is being poured into it that it has to be expressed. So we do what we do to express the, the right relatedness that comes from God. We don't do it in order to get rightly related. And, and the, all the world hangs on that difference. The Pharisee does what he does to get rightly related, but Jesus is telling us, no, it has nothing to do with that. Rather, when it comes to standing before God, you are in the same position as the John Lind trader or anybody else that you might think of. You ha your only hope is found in Jesus Christ. Can you see, those of us who are inclined towards the Pharisee position, that Jesus has completely abolished the social evaluation game? Not for society at large, not for government, but for kingdom people and how we look at God, look at ourselves, and look at the world. Can, can we see that the way we view God ourselves and others can have nothing to do with this social evaluation game because it's supposed to have everything to do with Jesus? And so we look at the world and God and others through the lens of the cross, 
which means, can you accept that the only way to enter into God's extravagant grace is to embrace a humility that shocks the Pharisees and set aside all those commonsensical, perfectly obvious ways that society evaluates and contrasts people. To do that, to do that, I have found, and many others have found, if, we, if you persist in it and grow in it, it is the most freeing thing in the world. It really is. When you are able to really set aside the social evaluation game and get free of that kind of diabolical hold it has on us and look at everyone through the lens of the cross, sinners for whom Jesus died. When that is, you commit to that being the only thing you know about anybody, aside from those who are, you're in intimate community with who invite you in to help them live out the walk. But everybody else, you just know Jesus Christ and him crucified. When you get that, it frees something in you. It unleashes a dimension of love you never otherwise would experience. And a dimension of peace and a dimension of joy. You have no idea how, it really is hard. We don't realize it because we're so used to it. But it really is fatiguing to be the ruler of the world who, whose superior wisdom can fix the world and, and, and you're running all the fixed uh, mechanisms in your head as you evaluate everybody. That really is very tiring. It's hard to be the most righteous person who has the right to look down on, on everybody else. Man, to get that off your back is really freeing. It really is freeing. And every one of the thoughts we have, the social game that compares and contr contrasts with others, it, it, it's a cork in the geyser of God's love within us. The reason I'm convinced the world is so lacking in love and so violent is because it's so addicted to the social evaluation game. And every one of those is a matter of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the original sin in the Bible. Every one of those blocks the flow of God's love. But when you can get free of that, and, and, and you no longer have to fix the world, you no longer have to fix people, you no longer have to have opinions about anything. Your job is so simple, and that is to agree with God that this person was worth dying for, and that person was worth dying for. And when you get locked in on that, man, it is so fun, and it's freeing, and there's a joy and a peace that is there. You just bless people, and you leave God, God's responsibility for fixing the world. You do what he calls you to do to express the life he's put inside of you, not to get anything. But other than that, you don't need to fix anybody or anything. You can't. You yourself are broken. It is free. If you were looking for that river of living water that Jesus says abides in all believers and is just longing to gush her forth, if you're looking for that and wondering where it is, it might, be, it might be that you're corking it because some part of your brain thinks it's the righteous, morally superior ruler of the world. And you're too busy fixing people in your brain rather than simply loving them. Can you accept the point of this parable? Is the only way in on the extravagant grace is to accept a humility that shocks the Pharisee. And now to folks who are hearing this, whether you're in this congregation or listening through podcasts or some other way, folks who identify more with the tax collector. It may be that by ordinary social evaluation standards, you are really bad, really bad. For all I know, you're, a, you're an American trader and an Al-Qaeda turncoat. That, that, that's not very good. For all I know, someone listening here is in that situation, just like John Lynn. God bless him. Or maybe that you're like the lady that I met some time ago who had sold her newborn baby uh, into sexual prostitution uh, for some meth. Uh, that's really bad. It's really bad. Maybe that you've royally screwed up your life, and maybe that you've hurt a whole lot of people. You've made some stupid decisions, maybe outright evil decisions that have caused catastrophic damage to yourself and to others. And maybe that you've flushed every opportunity that God has given to you down the toilet. You've made a mess of, out of your life. And maybe that as you're listening to this, you don't have a clue as to what, what the first step you could take to begin to repair the damage that is done. I got that. 
Can you, in the light of this parable, in the light of the authority of Jesus Christ, can you accept that despite all of that, whatever that might be, may involve murder for all I know, can you accept that God is this beautiful, that he still loves you with a hot, burning, infinitely intense love that hasn't changed, that hasn't changed? Can you accept that he ascribes unsurpassable, unimprovable worth to you despite all the sin? Can you accept that? And can you accept that if you will simply turn, which isn't an achievement contest, it's just an intention of the heart. That's what the word repent is. You figuratively smite your breast, you have nothing to stand in, and you say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the position we're all to be in. You're not unique in that respect. We all got to pray that prayer. But you turn and you submit your life to him and ask for his mercy. Can you accept that he gives you that mercy? And now you are justified. You are justified. Your heart is rightly related to him. And that you are as justified as you're ever going to be. You're as justified as Billy Graham or Mother Teresa. Uh, You're rightly related to him. You are now a child of God and a participant in the kingdom. Now, you may have a whole lot of mess to clean up. And maybe in this lifetime, you're not going to clean it all up. And I'm not promising you a bed of roses and everything will be wonderful. But what I am saying is this. When you turn your heart to God, you open up the valve by which he can start breathing life into you. And and, and things are going to start changing. Your desires will start to change. Your appetite will change. Your habits will begin to change. It won't magically occur overnight, but if you're, if you're walking in the kingdom way and you get people involved in your life to help you do this, you're going to start changing. And God has a way of bringing good out of evil that is beautiful. And you'll find that some of the messes that you made, actually he has a marvelous way of turning around uh, into kingdom trophy cases and, and displaying his, his, his greatness. Will he, can you accept that? And will you turn to him here this morning? Start living your kingdom life. Pharisees, humble yourself. You're in the same position as the John Lynn tax collectors of the first century. Tax collectors, accept the mercy. He extends it to you. And we are all in the same spot. Now this is weekend training, right? This is seminar training for the kingdom. This is not a self-church. This is training for church. And so what matters is not what you're thinking right this moment. What matters is what you're going to be thinking about this an hour from now and a day from now and a week from now. What I have learned is this. I can have an intention to view people only through the lens of Jesus Christ. I've had that intention for 12, 13 years now. But my thought processes have, have been formed throughout my life. And they, they're, they're habituated. They, they, there's an autopilot there. And I instinctively fall back into my pharisaical uh, compare and contrasting without even knowing it. And so it takes, it takes discipline, daily discipline, to conform your mind to Jesus Christ and to take every thought captive to Jesus Christ. And so uh, we're, we're giving assignments at the end of all these messages and really encouraging people to take these and apply them throughout the week. And so as you leave here, stop by at the the hub and and pick up one of these assignment sheets. I encourage you to invite others in. If you're serious about living this radically beautiful countercultural kingdom and thinking in a different way and getting rid of the social evaluation game, you're going to have to have other people involved in your life who who are there asking you how you're doing and and you challenge one another. Because you will, on the way home, when the first person cuts you off, I can almost guarantee you, you're going to be back in that social evaluation game. (laughs) And so uh, I encourage you to pick up that homework. Would the prayer team come forward? And I'm just going to close in this prayer with, with this invitation. If you're here this morning and you're not submitted to, to Christ, uh, I don't care what you theoretically believe. That, that's not the point. Is your heart submitted? And if it's not, would you come forward and talk to these people and just surrender to him? And that starts you on the kingdom walk. That's what it's all about. That's what justifies you, gets you rightly aligned with him. 
you have any other need that you'd like to have prayed for, I encourage you to come forward. And uh, as we said last week, just start pushing in the kingdom direction uh, with, with these folks. And let me close with this prayer. Father, in Jesus' name, will you bug us? Will you bug us? Will you bug us? Uh, God, as we fall back into the slumber of our habitual thinking and, and conform our thoughts to the way of society and the way of government and other things, Lord, wake us up and put people in our life who will help us to stay awake so we can walk in this radical love, uh, loving the unlovable and, and extending mercy to, to those who off offend us and, and just seeing people through the lens of Jesus Christ. Free us from our common sense. Free us from watering down and diluting the power and beauty of you and your kingdom with our socially inherited common sense, but rather to think and to live in a radically different way that is conformed to you in all your beauty. Build your kingdom in us. Build your kingdom through us as we leave this place in Jesus' name. And all God's people said one last time. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and build the kingdom.